If you would remain standing and take your Bibles and open them to the Gospel of John. This will be our last week in John's Gospel for a bit, uh, because next week we'll begin an Advent series, um, be there for six weeks, um, and we'll be looking at Hebrews through Advent, so um, we'll pick back up with John after that. This morning, chapter 13, verses 1 through 20, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God, and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. He poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet, put on his outer garments, and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should also do, just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. The word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask for help. Father, we need you. By your spirit, may we behold Christ, the Lord of all who leads and sets an example as being a minister who washes feet. Lord, would you shape us as a congregation? 
May we also be people of the tower. Help us. Lord, we can't do this on our own. So would you crush our pride and again show us your greatness. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So the hour has arrived. It's here. What is Jesus going to do now? What do superheroes do when they discover their superpowers? I'm just going to spoil it for you, but Spider-Man gets bit by this crazy spider. And the result of that is he gets these powers. And this is before, like, the spandex comes out. What do do they do? Like, if you discover that you have powers, that you have all of this stuff that you can do, you try them out. Right? Webs come out of his wrist. He can climb up walls and buildings. He can jump incredible distances. Try him out. He goes through the city, right? Working up his his powers. Like, I have all these powers. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to put them to use. Here, John is speaking some to the fullness of the, the power of who Christ is. His moment of glory has come. All things are His. Every molecule of the universe belongs to Him. So what does his, his trying out His powers look like? What's His spin around the city? That's what John is giving us here. What, what is He going to do? Everything belongs to Him. There is none higher than him, and his moment of glory has come. What does he do then? That's the text before us today. We've now transitioned. John has taken us from giving us all these signs, and now he's going he's to show us more about who Jesus is so that we can behold his glory in this hour. All the signs are telling us who, and now we're getting to the what. The church has called this the farewell discourse. And Jesus is saying goodbye. Last week we heard his final words to the public here from chapter 13 to 17. We're going to hear his final words to his friends. John's account lets us eavesdrop into this very small group to hear what Jesus is saying, not to the rest of the world, but to his followers. What does he want them to know as he is approaching the cross, resurrection, and ascension? What we have before us has been significant throughout all of church history. And Jesus is bringing these lessons to bear. What we'll see is that Jesus shows that his love is a love that cleanses. It's the first thing we'll see, a love that cleanses. And then we'll see a service that explodes. Jesus offers a service, the lowliest of service, and that service is going to explode in the life 
of the church. First, a love that cleanses. Look at verse 1. All these things, he's going to set the scene for us. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Listen to the way that John piles up significance. He, he's, this is a huge lead-in, right? A Passover. It's like a drum that he's been beating from the beginning all the way back in chapter 2. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Passover Lamb of God is here. Further, we're we're told that this is his long-awaited hour. The hour that is not coming, it's not coming, it's not coming, and now it's here. This is part of that very hour. And in that hour, he is going back to the Father. This whole idea of the world introduced here is going to dominate the scene throughout the farewell discourse. It's something like 40 times. It's God's concern and love for the world and calling his people like you and me out of the world to himself. So we have the Passover, we have the hour, but we also have love. He loved his own who were in the world. He loved them to the very end. John is sometimes called the apostle of love. He ties together love with the mission and identity of Christ in in all of his writing. He does this. He cannot conceive of Jesus and his work on earth and his mission to save sinners like you and me. He cannot conceive of that apart from love. Jesus is a God of love. Listen to 1 John 4. Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Love, love, Love. God is love. The only way that you will ever know God is through love. Jesus is an expression of the love of God for sinners. Notice the totality of this love. Having loved his own. Past. He loved them in the past. He he loved them backwards. He loved them in the world. And then it says he he loved them to the end. That word end is interesting. It's the word telos. And sometimes we use it. It's in other disciplines. It's not just a theological term. Goal, end, principal event, aim, purpose. He loved them to the uttermost. He loved them the best. There is no higher love than Christ loving to the uttermost. And we know what that's going to be. We know the uttermost is going to be a cross and death. He loved them to that end. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, love of every love the best. 
Right here at the beginning of the farewell discourse, John wants us to see that Jesus loves his followers. Do you know that today? Do you know that Jesus loves you? I know that that rolls off the tongue, that John 3, 16, we've got it. But sometimes I don't think that really sinks in and, and shapes who we are. Do you know that you are loved to the end? Could, could you see Jesus saying this about you? Having loved me, he loved me while I was in the world. He loved me to the end. He loved me to the uttermost. Put these things together. How, how, how do we know that we're loved by Jesus? And what do we do when we struggle to believe it? I think he's giving us all the ways to do that. He's saying this, this love of Christ for his followers is tied to the Passover. And it's tied to his hour of glory. You want to know for sure that you are loved by God? Look at Jesus on a cross. And see what God has done for you. Sometimes we struggle with this. We struggle knowing God has loved us, but John is telling us where to look. Remember the Passover lamb. Remember that the hour of glory, the glory of Christ, was him being laid low instead of you and me. That's exactly what Jesus is teaching his followers. And John adds... To the suspense of the moment during supper when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. John reminds us that these events go all the way back to the garden. This event, this moment is is very, very old. All the way back in the garden... Satan tempted. The devil tempted us. And we fell. We were plunged based on what happened there. Based on the defiance of God. Way back in the garden we were plunged into sin and death. And that is still at work right here in this room. Way back there the seed of the serpent was present. It's present here in the room, but we were promised way back there what would happen. The seed of the woman would have a bruised heel, but would crush the head of the serpent. All of that is coming to a head right here in this room with Jesus having a meal with his followers. There's one more thing that John adds to stack up the significance of this moment. Look at verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into His hands, and that He had come from God and was going back to God, there is none higher than that. All things in His hands. Jesus, the supreme ruler of all creation, the high king of heaven and earth, the commander of the heavenly host, the holder of wind and water, the one who could still storms with a word, the judge of the living and the dead, the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth, all things in his hands, none higher in creation or outside of creation, all things are his. 
as John is good at doing, he's, he's trying to make Jesus as big as he can possibly get to us. Just like he did in the prologue, he's saying, look at how big Jesus is. Look at how glorious he is. It's a huge buildup. It's a massive thing. What will this massive buildup look like? What's going to happen next? He knows that he has all things. There is none higher. You cannot beat him. He has more than you. He's smarter than you. There is no way that any of us hold a candle to him. What does he do next? something very strange. He takes off his outer garment. He takes up a towel, ties it around his waist, fills a basin with water, starts going around the room in the lowliest form of a servant. Not just a normal household servant, but the lowliest job of a household servant. Washing nasty feet. It really is astonishing. John builds and builds Passover, our love. He knows he has everything, and then he washes feet. Jesus rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water in a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. What does this kind of service have to do with glory? Jesus serves. He serves, but not just, again, not just any regular kind of service. He does the lowliest thing. You can read lots of um, thoughts on this. Some commentators even taught that a self-respecting religious Jewish man would, would never do this. He would wash his own feet, but never someone else's. This was something reserved, again, for the the lowliest servant. We live in a world with nice socks and closed-toed shoes. I'm very thankful that I have socks on. Generally, at the end of the day, our feet are relatively clean. We know what dirty feet are like, but kids, these were some dirty, stinky feet. They didn't go around wearing socks. They didn't have sidewalks and paved streets. Think about it. Everywhere they went, they had sandals on their feet. They walked on dirt everywhere they went all the time. At no point were they walking on a sidewalk like you and me. Always dirty. Can you imagine the smell? This is a lowly... Jesus isn't going around the room taking socks off, right? He's not doing that. It was a nasty situation here. So in this process, he comes to Peter. Peter's like, what are you, what are you doing? What? That, Jesus, you're, you're going to wash my feet too? He became convinced more and more over the, the period of time that, that Jesus is in fact Lord. He, he, 
He's grown to that extent Peter has. He's the Lord. He's the master. He is not the servant. He has become convinced of that. And and now Jesus is doing something that he can't put into a grid. He can't understand it. He has no place for Jesus that would wash his feet like this. No. No. And Jesus says, look, you don't don't understand this now. And I get it. You're going to understand after. And we hear Jesus say this a bunch. You don't understand fully what this is going to be like, but you're going to understand after. What's he talking about? You're going to understand after you've seen me on a cross. You're going to understand after you've seen me die and you're going to meet me again in resurrection. That's when you'll understand. He's giving us a a grid to to put this in. He's saying this cleansing, this washing is about crucifixion. It's about the cleansing that we all need. Peter responds in verse 8, you never wash my feet. No. Peter doesn't get it. He doesn't get that Jesus is putting his whole ministry, his whole mission on display in this act says no. Yeah, and I get it. I think to a certain degree, you and I can get it. Here's the greatest person who's ever lived. Will we allow him to do this lowly service for us? However, Jesus knows that if Peter doesn't get this. If he can't comprehend this lowly service, he will never have a grid for the cross, ever. This service pales in comparison to that one. If we don't have a grid for a Jesus who could wash feet like this, how will we ever have a grid for a Jesus who will go to the cross for sinners? It's never a good idea to argue with Jesus. It doesn't tend to go well. Not a lot of people win those arguments. Jesus says, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. That term share is literally inheritance. You will lose your inheritance, Peter, if I do not wash you. If you don't let me do this lowly thing for you, Peter... You're not going to inherit. Peter needed, as do every single one of us, to realize the futility of his own efforts to cleanse himself. Utterly futile. It's not good enough. Leon Morris puts it well. Quote, it is only in accepting the truth that we cannot secure our salvation by our own effort, but that Christ can cleanse all who trust him, that we are freed from our sin and brought into Christ's salvation. It is only when we give up our own efforts. It's when we stop. No, we cannot cleanse ourselves. He must be the one to do it. That takes a certain measure of humility. You have to say, I'm not good enough. I cannot cleanse myself. Peter got the point, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus, wash all of me. Wash all of me. Notice Jesus' response to what Peter says. He says, 
The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not every one of you. This is a very important lesson to understand. It puts the foot washing in the correct perspective. Jesus says what is really needed is complete cleanness. And his disciples are clean. They've already been washed. They're already cleansed by him. It's like, no, you you don't need me to wash all of you. That's done. You're mine. You're cleansed already. You don't need that cleansing again and again and again. You only need it once, but your feet are going to get dirty. You are clean. Listen, for those of you in Christ in this room, the same thing is true of you. You are clean. You have been washed. The righteousness is found in Christ. Listen to what Pink says. It assures me that my hope is a stable one. That my standing before God is immutable. It banishes doubt and uncertainty. It gives the heart and mind abiding peace to know that the the benefits I have found in Christ can never be recalled. You are clean and nothing can ever change that status. Do you know that's who you are in Christ? Benefits never recalled. And why wash feet? What is Jesus doing here? You're already clean. I'm not going to bathe you, all of you, Peter. You already have that that cleanness. He's washing feet because as bathed people who walk around in the world, our feet get dirty. When we are in Christ, we are clean. But it doesn't mean that we don't need Christ as we go through our daily lives. We need Him as we go. We are clean in the eyes of God, but our feet are dirty as we walk through this sinful world. Calvin calls our dirty feet all the passions and cares by which we are brought into contact with the world. Thus, Christ always finds in us something to cleanse. Listen, we have this stamp on us, cleansed, righteous, holy before God, and yet... As we go, and you know it and I know it, as we go through this world, there's always work for Christ to do in us. We have not arrived. We are not yet glorified. We are in the process of being sanctified. And we need Jesus to wash us today. To cleanse our feet. We need Christ today. Jesus ends that by saying not all the disciples are clean. He knows, just as John told us, what's going on with Judas. I think one reason John pays so much attention to Judas is he's putting Judas forward as a warning sign to us. Hey, this is what unbelief looks like. It doesn't look like the guy over there yelling and screaming at Jesus. It doesn't look like all the enemies out there who want him put on the cross in this real public way. It looks like a good dude. It looks like a disciple. Unbelief can look like being a disciple. If Judas lived here in Shreveport, he would probably come to Grace Prez. He would be a good reformed guy. 
And he wouldn't just be a member of the church, he would likely be a leader in the church. Perhaps a deacon, maybe even an elder. You're like, how could that be? Look, look at Jesus. Look at his followers. Judas is among them. We are being flagged. We are being warned. Hey, unbelief doesn't just look like the other person over there. It doesn't look like the person that you pass on the interstate that you're like, oh man, look at this. I can just tell by the bumper stickers. They're way out there. No. I think he brings Judas up again and again and again as a warning to us. Check yourself. Check your heart of belief. Do you believe? Judas was was this close to Jesus all this time, and he did not believe, and in the end was willing to sell him for his own personal gain. So not only do we have this love that cleanses, that's what the love of God does here. That's what the love of Christ, this never-ending love, it, it washed feet. And then now this service that explodes. Look at verse 12. When he had washed their feet, put on his outer garments, he resumed his place and said to them, Do you understand what I have done uh, to you? It's a great question. And doubtless the answer, because of Peter's being perplexed, is, "Uh uh-uh. No, Jesus, we, we don't get it. Would you? Had you been in this room, would, would, you have, would you have gotten it? Would you have understood? Oh, yeah. I got it, Jesus. I'm tracking. No. No, I think all of us would have been utterly perplexed. They have witnessed all these signs. They watched Jesus call a dead man to life. And now he's washing their feet. What, what in the world? He sets out to explain to them as best he can this side of the cross. You call me teacher and Lord and you are right for so I am. If then your Lord and teacher have wa- has washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Jesus knows they revere him. Teacher and master. He knows that. He knows that he is in high esteem in their eyes and he is worthy of it. He doesn't deny it. You're right to do so. You're right to call me your teacher and your Lord. And I being a teacher and Lord and all these other things that John has set before us, if I washed your feet, you should do the same thing to each other. The Messiah has taken on this lowliest role of a servant to benefit other people. And then he looks at his disciples and say, now it's your turn. Jesus gives this example to follow. He says it. This is an example. Literally a pattern for you. It's a pattern. Here's your pattern of life. Here is what is to mark your life. Lowly service. In our day, efficiency tends to win. People get things done. And in that space, pride. Nobody likes to be lowly. Everyone likes to win. 
Everyone wants to be first. We want want to be on the top. And yet Jesus is showing us in his kingdom, in his economy, the way that he views the world. The one on the top does the lowliest service. You want to be great in the kingdom? Serve others. Jesus does this unthinkable thing to the benefit of other people, and we should too. Humility, humble service in the name of Christ is supposed to mark the church. I love this quote by Carson. Christian zeal divorced from transparent humility sounds hollow, even pathetic. How can you be a zealous Christian and not be humble? He calls it pathetic, and he's right. You want to be a zealous Christian. You want to be a super Christian. You want to, you want to emulate Jesus, serve other people in the lowliest ways in humility. That is what he's teaching. And he's saying this should mark his church. This week, in one of the things that I was reading, I came across this life philosophy of uh, Peanuts creator Charles Schultz. Supposedly, he communicated this, um, his life worldview um, with a series of questions. So I'm just going to try it out on you. Okay, here's the first set of questions. You ready? And I'm not going give, to give you time to answer them. You're just going to have to do the best you can. Name the five wealthiest people in the world. Name the last five Heisman Trophy winners. Name the last five winners of the Miss America pageant. Name five people who have won the Nobel or Pulitzer Prize. Name five of the last 20 or so Academy Award winners. Name the last five years worth of World Series winners. So that's one set of questions. You can kind of grade yourself and you know how many you would get or roughly the amount. Now this other set of questions. I'm going to customize it. These aren't his exact questions. This is more for family in the room. List five people who've walked with you through hard times in your life. List three teachers who have had profound influence in your life. Name three people who have brought you food when you were ill or maybe when you had a baby. Name five people who you know for sure have consistently prayed for you in your life. List five people who have been radically generous to you and are not seeking anything in return. Which category is greatness to you? The whole world rocks and celebrates. We set cities on fire when somebody wins the World Series. And I bet we we couldn't name any of those people. Who are they? The lowliest of service. Jesus is calling that profoundly great. And this is what is to define our world. 
Lowly service. And, and it's proven true in the quiz I just gave you. You know it's true. And so do I. It's greatness. That's the trajectory, not only of Jesus' love, but of our love. Having been loved by Him, this is what we are enabled to do. Having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end, and then He washed their feet. Are we shaped by the loves of our hearts to serve others in the lowliest way? Again, Judas comes up. I'm not speaking of all of you. Only those whom I've chosen. The the emphasis is back on this betrayal again. And then he quotes Psalm 41. He who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me. Again, it's being put in sharp relief. It's it's a quote out of Psalm 41 where David is thinking about all his enemies and most of them are guys over there. But here he's saying, actually I have an enemy that's right here in my own house. We've eaten bread together. And it's meant to, again, put Judas' betrayal in sharp relief in contrast to the greatness of Christ. Look at his love, look at his service, look at his greatness. Look at how bad this betrayal is. It's shocking, heartbreaking. So as we come to a close, how has the love of Christ shaped us? He loved us so much, he served us to the end. Just a couple of applications, the most exalted and influential Christians. Those who work in real important jobs and halls of power, who know all the inner stories, the the goings on, have all the powerful friends and receive all the best opportunities. Still, a servant is not greater than his master. You will never, ever outdo him in greatness. And what is the implication then if that's true? We can be the the greatest person on earth and we are still called to love and serve other people in the lowliest possible ways. That's one application. The fact that Jesus washed the feet of the disciples means that those who follow him in even the most menial service, the most menial, nasty tasks, washing very nasty feet is a nasty task. Following him, following in his footsteps might mean we do crazy things like vacuum or sweep or mop or change diapers. It might mean we smile at somebody we're angry at. It might mean we stand back there and hand out bulletins to all the folks running late for Sunday morning worship. Greatness. Service is greatness. What will the love of Christ in our hearts do? Is it making us more like Him? He gave us the pattern. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this, Your Word. It is light, life-giving. 
Jesus, not as higher or better than you. We, your servants, are not greater than you, our master. But the height of your power and glory, rather than show off, you served in the lowliest of ways. Lord, may your gospel shape us like that. Pray it in Christ's name.